When you consider Mormon beliefs, they include some really insane things. But yet Mormonism is considered mainstream. How has that happened? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Mormons have some really odd beliefs. They believe that, that you know, you become a god. You know, if you've lived faithfully, that you'll become a god and inherit your own, own planet, that you basically become the Jesus Christ of that planet after you die. They hold to, well, they pretty much reject the idea of the Trinity. They reject the idea. They say God the Son is Jehovah. They come up with some really, they say that, that God the Father was incarnate. I mean, they come up with things that are just completely contrary to orthodoxy. They, they think that they have this special revelation that came to Joseph Smith through this angel Moroni that brought these gold plates. So he allegedly got these plates from this angel. And then in translating it, there are eyewitnesses of him translating it, but the way he would translate it is he was a peep stoner. A peep stoner is kind of like the modern fortune teller that looks in a crystal ball and they would look at a mirror inside their hat. And so he didn't actually translate the plates. He would look at the mirror and then recite what allegedly was the translation of the plates. And yet they're saying that this is all divine revelation. This is the Book of Mormon. And this is, you know, so they have some really fundamentally strange beliefs. And those beliefs also, they'll change, right? They were very pro-polygamy until they were told that Utah couldn't become a state unless they rejected polygamy. And then all of a sudden, the, the orthodox doctrine of Mormonism changes so that they're against against polygamy. But yet this religion has continued to grow. So so how is this? How does it continue to grow even though on the face of it, it makes no sense? I mean, I think one of the things you want to think about with an episode like this is it's really easy when you think about something like Mormonism. The reason people are interested in a lot of time is because of some of the crazy beliefs you've kind of been talking about. What interests them to hear about it is these nutty things that they hold to. But when you actually think about false religions, they're all pretty nutty. They're all, you know, and, and maybe not equally, but I mean, anything that says something other than the truth, at certain point, if you believe it, it's going to go into really strange positions of error. And I think part of what we want to kind of talk about tonight is religions that thrive, they do so because they're successful at selling something that people need and something that people want. They give people something that they desire. And so when you look at something like Mormonism with all these weird things, at the same time, it's providing something that's an alternative to the truth of Jesus Christ. It's something that's providing an alternative that people find useful enough to be able to live their lives by. And so while we're not going to talk about all religions, there's, there'll be parts in here where we'll talk about some of the odd beliefs. But, but the focus of this should really be how do these false religions, how do they provide people with things? How do they, how do they give people hope when they really don't have hope? And how do they? How should we actually think about that as Christians? And how should we, as Christians, our job is to tear down strongholds. It's to wrestle against principalities and powers. And when you see these nutty ideas, effectively, those are strongholds and principalities and powers. They are they're darkness that need to be torn down. And that's really what Christians should deal with. And I think you know, kind of related to what you just said, when you look at most churches in America, I think a lot of the people that go, they go out of wrote they go because they feel a sense of community other things 
But a lot of them don't really understand the doctrine. I mean, the doctrine of Roman Catholicism is pretty nutty that a man can drag Jesus Christ out of heaven and slaughter him on an altar. I mean, this is insane that that bread becomes flesh, but it still looks like bread. And the problem is that so many people that are practicing religion, they just accept that religion is supposed to be nutty. It right. doesn't really make any sense. There's no logic to it. There's no rationality to it which is very different than what, what God says, right? In Isaiah 1, he says, take every, or he says, you know, come, let us reason together. You know, in, in Romans 12, it says, you know, take every thought captive. And so true Christianity is about thinking and reasoning and understanding that the truth is always inwardly consistent. It always matches. It always fits together. It always works. And these other religions basically say nothing works, so we can just choose anything, and we'll just embrace that. And so a lot of the reasons that I think it became mainstream is that a lot of the beliefs in a lot of churches are pretty nutty in their mainstream. And, and part of the other part is a life without any hope is horrible. I mean, a lo- you know, as much as people want to say, you know, atheism, atheism is its own religion. Atheism is its own way of ma- – I mean, atheism lives on the backbone of the fact that God has made the world consistent and that the world that you can understand the world through the consistency of it but it doesn't attempt to explain that consistency because it can't and so there's this part of it where one of the reasons why these things are attractive is because hopelessness is horrible when you have absolutely no hope nothing happens everything heads toward decay very quickly death is a very rapid result and so People will accept some level of nuttiness just to have hope. And I think we just forget. It's really easy to go, we're in this modern age where we've put all this stuff behind us. And the truth is, is no, you haven't. There is, without hope, you'll accept almost anything. And people just don't want to think that's true. Right. We hear about Zeus or we hear about, you know, the the Roman gods and the Greek gods. And we go, how could anybody believe that? But just look at Roman Catholicism. How can anybody believe that? Right? right. I mean, look at Mormonism. How can anybody believe that? Look at Scientology. How can anybody believe that? And as you said, throughout all ages at all times, people are desperate for hope. They're desperate for some structure that they can then use to help themselves be deceived in their unrighteousness because they're denying the God who made them. You know, as it says in Romans 1, we can't forget that why they're doing it. They're doing it because they love their sin. But at the same time, they need something to support it so that they don't just go, I reject God, there's nothing left, let's go die. Instead, they go, I reject God. But all these other people say, this is the way to God. So, you know, now I have hope through, through you know, a group of people banding together, if nothing else. And we're not going to treat Mormonism as something that stands unique out there among the false religions. In fact, as we break it down, it's basically, we'll look at it as sort of a modular house where they just took different parts from different religions, different false religions, twisted it with Jesus' words and and put this together as if it were its own thing. And it's really not. There's nothing new with it. Right. Mormonism and, and Islam aren't very different. In a lot of ways, they're very, very similar. And they did the same thing, that they just take some pieces from Christianity that they like, they add some things that they didn't like, they fix it so that they end up getting power, that men get power, especially because of polygamy and other things. And so people like that and, you know, but you just look and it's like a thousand years later, 1200 years later, it's, it's just the new Islam with, I mean, with some twists, I don't mean it's exactly the same, but, but the way it came about is very similar. Mormonism starts out fundamentally being a form of Arianism. It starts out with the idea that man can become God. And obviously that has appeal to men. 
right? If you want to say, let's have hope and you want to create a false hope, what false hope can you create that's better than saying, in the end, you become God? And this is Arianism after, after Arius, not Arianism after white supremacy. Right. With right. an I, not a Y. And yes. I think, you know, I think they were, pro the Mormon theology is probably a lot more Arian than Arius was. I mean, you know, because they are, because a lot of times when you hear Arian, Arianism, it's mixed, it's in a talk of like semi-Pelagianism and where, you know, just having the choice to salvation is putting you equal to God. But this isn't, this is not that level. This is saying like, you literally become a God. You will be the same as God. You will get your own world where you are the God of that world. It's, and, and it's like, that is literally what it is. It's not like, well, if you take that to the logical conclusion, no, no that's, that's what it is. Which means, I mean, you talk to Mormons and they're like, well, well, you know, we're, we're, we're Christians. We just believe a little extra things. But the little extra things they believe, like, rewrote all of theology, rewrote all everything, and, and just completely flipped it on its head. Where, you you know, the whole, you know, the, you know, the fall is gone um, because Adam is a god. Adam is a great guy. And so it's just very, very different than, you know, than biblical Christianity. It's truly, you know— truly different it's polytheism with origin stories for the extra gods and i mean it is exactly i mean it's satanic it's important to recognize that because it's exactly what satan said to eve you know in genesis 3 5 it says for god knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like god knowing good and evil and so that's the promise they're fulfilling that promise that satan made so the first thing to recognize in mormonism is it's a satanic religion it's doing the same exact thing that satan used to trigger the fall in the first place and satan did this through appealing to to effectively selfishness right ultimate selfishness i will be like god which is which is satan's which is satan's issue as well right i mean this is this is what he claims and so right he lies that other people will be that because he's trying to use that to be god himself and it's important to remember you said it's satanic and it's demonic i mean i just want to every episode that we can weave this in People have a wrong view of what satanic and demonic things are. The occult is not particularly satanic or demonic. It's what is satanic and demonic is self-centeredness, selfishness, that I will be above God, that I can be like God. This is I can the, dictate what God does, right? right? Those type of things. And that is what makes something demonic and satanic. And I think it's really important to ground ourselves in that because when you see Scripture talking about warring against these things, it's warring against those ideas. It's warring against those lies because Satan was a liar from the beginning. It's, you know, when you if you want to say, well, what's, what is satanic? What's demonic fundamentally? It's things that are defined by deception, defined by pride, defined by covetousness, all right. those kinds of things, things that we think are a little more respectable. But when you throw that word on top of them, you realize, that, oh, this is really fundamentally bad. Which isn't, because, uh, um, I mean, like the Satanists will say that and they'll claim like Satan isn't real. These are all just metaphors. But like, that's not the point is that there is no Satan, like demons. I mean, you know, Joseph Smith claimed to see all these visions. Was he just making it up or was he seeing demons at certain points? I, you know, who the cares? Second, you know, yeah, <laughs> who cares? But I mean, it's very plausible he was, you know, right. I'm saying it, if it could have been either one and it would be equally satanic in either way. Right. right, and we just need to recognize, right? I mean, he was a peepstoner. He was basically, you know, charged, and he was went to went to prison for being a peepstoner. And does that mean that he didn't see visions in his his glass? No, he might have fortune right. tellers. 
the fact that they see a vision and a demon is speaking to them doesn't make it any less demonic, any less evil. Right. It is still evil. And so whether he just was clever and made it up and conned people or whether he had demons talking to them that conned people, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is it was evil what he was doing. But the point you've been making here is that the doctrine is offering that to the people right? As and, and appealing to them at that same level appealing to their pride, appealing to their covetousness, and using deception to do it. Right. And you can see that this is, this is the way that Scripture talks about the devil. In Ezekiel 28, 2, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. That's Mormonism. <laughs> I mean, that's that is. I sit in the seat of the gods. You know, I'm. I'm. It, it's like it's. It's. Well, it's not a planet, but you've got your own island in the middle of this, the ocean, and nobody can come and get you until Alexander the Great actually does and makes it not an island anymore. And right. you know, um, but but the the promise that the devil made to Eve in the garden is the same promise that he wants to keep making all along the way to anybody. Who would like to hear that? And he might color it slightly differently, but you see it in scripture and you see it happening with Mormonism. And we should compare this to the true gospel because the true gospel comes and says, you're a slave to sin. You're not a God. You're a slave. You've been sold and under. And you become a slave of righteousness. Right. So you're that's still what I was going to say. Right. And the appeal isn't, I'm going to set you free and make you a God. The appeal is, right, I'm going to make you a slave of righteousness, which is freedom. But Jesus is like, I'm not mincing words. You're still a slave of righteousness. You're still, you're going to serve righteousness. And it's a very different thing. And so when you ask why would someone want Mormonism, it's because Mormonism pretends to offer the same things with a much more enticing package. The person doesn't have to humble themselves. They don't have to deal with their sin. This is why we say the gospel, the gospel is a miraculous thing when a man receives it because it allows him to that sin to be broken in his life so that he can humble himself, so that he can come to God, because without it, no man can come to God. And so when you under, you have to understand why people want this, because the gospel isn't enticing in the same way. The gospel isn't offering them that they can fulfill their pride, and Mormonism is. You know, talking about fulfilling pride, you know, and the religious environment that Mormonism came up in with the Second Great Awakening where it wasn't full Aryan, but they were abandoning Calvinism and saying, you will, you can choose, you have the power to choose salvation for yourself. That it's not God who's deciding who he saves. He will save anyone and you have the power to choose. And so Mormonism is coming from that and it goes and it just takes it way farther. I mean, you have, you know, a lot of like uh, the speaking in tongues, they're very like Pentecostal assemblies of God type stuff. I mean, that's what they were doing in a lot of areas in the second great awakening and early Mormonism was doing those same things. Um, and, and, it, and it's very much tied to saying, you know, well, they said you'd be, you have a little bit of godlike power. We're going to give you everything. Right. And I mean, and it's important when you think of the Second Great Awakening and their, their rejection of the idea that the glory of God is that I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And it starts to become, you know, it is what Luther was fighting against when he started the Reformation. He said, what I'm fighting against is either man is the puppet of God or God is the puppet of man. If God is the puppet of man, you are above God, which by definition makes you a God. If you can control God, you are a God. So we should look at this and recognize that Arminianism is a form of making man into God. That's why it's so popular. 
is because it's not about humbling yourself. It's about going, I can control God. If I tell God he has to save me, he has to save me. And that's simply false, but yet it has an appeal to it. And it's why so much of the church is Arminian is because it has an appeal because it puts you in the place of God, not as overtly as Mormonism, but we shouldn't deny that it's still doing the same thing. But you know, just historically, Mormonism is a product of the Second Great Awakening. It comes right after the Second Great Awakening in areas where the Second Great Awakening went. It was a, it was a religion that grew up in frontier America, and now it, America is taking it and distributing it to the rest of the world. Right. And it is. I mean, we should always think of all religions that are out there competing. Or there's a marketplace of ideas, right? I mean, there's a market. I mean, and you have God puts His power on display in a way where the power of God is shown, and people look at it and they say, "I want that." And and there are people going, "This is you. This is how you come to God. You come to God in, in humility. You come to God by pleading to Him. You come to God by asking because you cannot make Him do anything." And someone else goes, "Hey, hey, buddy." <laughs> You know, do you do you like what they're do you not like what they're selling? I've got something that's a little bit easier. I mean, and so you just we just really need to understand. I mean, it people are selling ideas and people are buying based on what's available. And it's really interesting because I mean I drew parallels before but between Islam and Mormonism. The reality is Islam does not make you into a god. In the end, they say God is God. And even if you commit jihad and even if you murder people for religion to expand it, the answer is, well, God doesn't have to do anything for you. I mean, that's that's the God of Islam is that he's fickle and he's still in control. The God of Mormonism is you can make yourself a God. I mean, it is it, it shows that what Islam arose out of by collecting stories and stuff from, from true Christianity, it actually is more faithful to Christianity than Mormonism is, which is coming out of the great, the Second Great Awakening in a very twisted gospel. But yet it is popular. Here's a, a slide that shows how much it's grown, and it continues to grow. And it continues to grow because people like that idea. They like the idea that you get to become God. And it is probably worth pointing out that this is, these numbers are worldwide. Yes. I, mean, it's, it's, I think in the U.S., its growth is is either flat or through either through child, you know, through through children or through new converts. But I don't think it's growing particularly in the U.S. Maybe as high as three percent is about. I think is about the the maximum amount that it's growing. But they work really hard to proselytize and to send out missionaries, and they send them out, and then you know it is sent out to other countries frequently. And so because of that, Mormonism is being spread to other countries, you know, quite rapidly. I mean, one thing that we that's also worth connecting it to in Scripture is when we see Baal worship in Scripture, we we frequently don't know what that really means. We just think that's some arbitrary thing. That's really not an arbitrary thing. Baal means Lord. Baal means basically husband is what the word means. And so this is really the idea of a man becoming God. That is Baal worship. So when we think of Mormonism, we should think of Mormonism as a form of Baal worship because it is the same religion as when you see it in, you know, Elijah with the prophets of Baal. Well, that's that's what Mormonism looks like. It can't be the same. We wouldn't fall. People wouldn't keep falling for the same idea over and over and over again, Dan. How can that be? <laughs> we just get stupider and stupider. So, so you don't have to push that hard to get it there anymore. 
we could now spread it throughout the world without any problem. Ignorance does a lot, right? I mean, yeah. there's a part of it where, I mean, if you don't even realize the connection between things, you're much more likely to, to fall for a repackaging of the same idea. And it has the same attraction, which is men want to be God. They want to be in control. Right. And demons will whisper in their ear, this is what you can be, just like Satan did to Eve. And I mean, and, and this is this is one of the reasons why Christianity actually makes a big part of proclaiming who God is. And this, I mean, a big part of what the church is called to do is to, when you say preach the gospel, we've reduced that down to communicate that someone needs just that then they're should be saved. But to actually, for them to understand that, you have to explain who God is. You have to explain who they are, who they are in relationship to God. And you have to show them the greatness of God. And when you see this in Scripture, I mean, it goes like Deuteronomy 32, 3 through 5. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. So there's this part of it where fundamental to Christianity is to explain who God is. And when you look at that, this isn't like arbitrary things that it's saying about God. It's things that someone else can pick at and they can ask you questions about God because it says that all his ways are justice. It says his work is perfect. Someone can go, well, what is his work? Someone can say, how are his ways justice? And that takes you to the law, and that takes you to how God proclaimed the law, and it takes you to explaining what justice is and what justice means, and all these things, and these things war against lies. They actually, by proclaiming who God is, you actually war against these lies. And there's a part of it where the reason why Mormonism can thrive is because it doesn't, I mean, when you start, when you drag some of their ideas out into the light, like you're talking about the different things of how, you know, where the tablets came from and how they know what they said and where, I mean, Jesus was seen by 500 witnesses after his resurrection. He was, I mean, in reality, there's more proof of Jesus being alive and Jesus doing these things than we have of Julius Caesar being alive. Like when you talk about like evidence in the world, it's not like it's hard to start destroying some of these things. And this is where it gets down to Christianity hasn't been doing its job. When you actually want to war against this, this is how the lies thrive is because Christianity isn't ascribing greatness to God. And so you can have these, this self-centered, effectively repackaging of an ancient lie and have it be successful. Right. Well, Christianity does ascribe greatness to God, but the fake Christianity, right? And the second great awakening that we talked about, I mean, the second great awakening was a shift of ascribing greatness to God to shifting it to ascribe greatness to men. You pray this prayer and God has to save you. Well, that's about ascribing greatness to men. Right. And so the issue is, and then Mormonism just takes it a step further. But whenever you ascribe greatness to men, you, by definition, reduce the greatness of God because you're reducing the contrast between God and man. This passage says, look at God. He's perfect. Look at man. He's completely corrupt. And you know, the Second Great Awakening says, man's not that bad. And then Mormonism says, man's actually pretty good, which means God becomes less and less and less. And so the, the antidote to these people that are seeing these religions – that are that are growing and are thriving it's that nobody's saying this is who the true god is you realize how ridiculous it is what the mormons believe because this is who god is he's the one that speaks and worlds come into existence you think you're a god like that what's wrong with you you're nuts but we don't talk about that we talk about pray a prayer and you'll be saved 
if you all you talk about is pray a prayer and you'll be saved, in the end you're creating a field that Mormonism can easily overtake and easily, you know, completely completely fill because they're doing it better. Why be part of God when you can be a whole God? Another way that they do this is when you have young men and like when they're 18 and you start to call them elders. Right? I mean, this is part of the escalation. This is part of saying, look at how great you are. That you take these 18-year-olds, you know, the Bible talks about in 1 Timothy 3, 6, and 7, not a novice list being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. It says don't put somebody into a position of leadership because this is the danger. And Mormonism goes, no, we want to puff people up because that's the heart of the religion is to puff people up. So they send out these missionaries that are 18, 19 years old that they're supposed to go on a mission trip for two years, and they call them elders, which is just absolutely absurd. It's contrary to the meaning of the word, and it's very damaging. It causes them to fall into the condemnation of the devil. But when your whole religion is about puffing up men, it's perfect. It fits right in line with what they're doing. And when you compare that to actual teaching of the church where there's the priesthood of all believers, not the elderhood of all believers, but that God actually does have work for all believers to do. Everyone who was saved, they're in the priesthood. It doesn't, and, and even it <clears throat> defines, right? I mean, there's work that can be done, but when there's a certain part of that work that you can't do until you're 30, there's a certain, you know, and so, but there is work to be done before that point. There is, there is real work to be done, and there's work for every single person to do, and the nature of that work isn't to puff you up. The nature of that calling doesn't, it doesn't cause you to think more of yourself. It causes you to understand your responsibility. It causes you to understand how the body is knit together. It causes you to learn to love the brethren. And that is a very different thing. And like you said, there's a part of it where some of the, rais- some of the reasons why these things can thrive is because the church has copied some of the bad practices from Mormonism. Either we're putting novices in positions where they shouldn't be or we're telling people that there's no work for them to do. And they but I'd say play. we do. We more imitate Roman Catholicism, which says there's no role for anybody except for the right. for the secular for the for the priests. That everybody else, you know, the sacred people, they have a role, and everybody else doesn't have a role. And not just men, but women as well. That right. women are priests as well, and that women have a real that they have a place within the church, and that God has a work for women to do, and that it is a real part of the ministry and the work of the church. And even though there are roles that are based on male and female, and, and that God has prescribed those, women are not set to the side, whereas in Mormonism, only men can be priests. But when you pu- push polygamy, polygamy is very, very damaging to women. You know, Mormonism can grow a lot because you go, hey, all of a sudden you can have multiple wives. And so men like that, and so they drive towards that religion, and the growth of the religion was, was around that, just like it is with Islam in a lot of ways. Instead of going, wait a second, this is incredibly damaging to women. Which, I mean, of course, polygamy, the Mormons were famous for polygamy, but they kind of got rid of that somewhat because it was illegal in the United States. So they say, well, we can't do it because it's illegal. But in a lot of their, you know, books of doctrine, it's still in there because it was something that Joseph Smith came up with. And, you know, when we're talking about a religion that's uh, focused on, you know, focused on self and focused on gratifying and exalting self, I mean, that... Polygamy is, you know, uh, a perfect example of that because, you know, you have Joseph Smith and, you know, you look at the history of it and he's really just coming up with stuff kind of ad hoc. I mean, there's not, you know, 
there's been like over a hundred years, or I guess it's going on two hundred years of people like trying to sort out like what, like sort out some like theology from it, but they haven't really been able to figure out like a consistent theology one hundred percent. Because he would just kind of whatever was convenient, he would just say he would prophesy. Sometimes he got it wrong. But that's okay. Just move on. But so, but at a certain point, so like, he was a Pentecostal. Yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know he was. Yeah. I'm just kidding. But you know, he gets to a certain point, and he's like, and, you know, I mean, he doesn't say this, but it's obvious. He's like, you know what? I want more wives. And so he comes up with the secret polygamy where he gets women to secretly marry him. He comes up with this whole like, you know, spiritual marriage that you need to have the spiritual marriage. And so he's secretly getting women to marry him, you know, not his wife, not his actual wife, because in Mormonism, you have to be, you know, after the after he came up with this, you have to have a, you know, a Mormon temple wedding to really be married to your wife for eternity. But he go he goes and marries all these other people. And, you know, I was even uh, listening to this biography of Brigham Young, and it was talking about, like, oh, you know, he just had to go through with this because, you know, and this guy isn't even Mormon, but he's saying, like, oh, Brigham Young, you know, he had to just accept by faith in Joseph Smith. Like, no, come on. He was he was like, you can go convince people, you know, because you're a high-ranking church leader. You can convince women that they need to marry you. I mean, it's it's there's no, like, faith to it. It's just like, hey, great opportunity. Let me go for it. Let me do it in secret. Let me lie to people and say we're not doing this. Until, I mean, eventually it does come out. But, you know, it's very, very much like just gratifying whatever desires that the church leaders had. And then they then they opened it up a bit before they had ran into legal trouble and had to shut it down again. But the dangerous thing is that's what Christianity is constantly sold as today. It's this irrational thing that you just have to have faith. Right. And faith being irrational. Faith being irrational other than and faith being this thing that says God is truth, and so truth all hangs together, and you can rest on it, and you can trust that the pieces will fit together perfectly because there is only one truth. And it's kind of completely different what faith is supposed to look like or what it biblically looks like versus what the church speaks. And if the church is declaring that's what faith is, this blind faith that doesn't reason, it doesn't have any pattern to it, you just have to believe, then you're basically doing the same thing that Brigham Young was selling. And I'll I'll fulfill my role of being the person who plugs other episodes. But if you know, if you heard about polygamy, and your question is, well, there was polygamy in the Bible. We did an episode on polygamy. I mean, and we talked through about why God allowed, you know, why polygamy was allowed, why polygamy is 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 sinful, why polygamy is not allowed, and you know, as well as we want one on faith and reason being tied together, and how faith and reason can't be separated. We have an episode on that as well. I mean, because there is this part of it where the goal is. Like Dan was saying earlier, Christianity really does hold together. It's not inconsistent. It's not just a bunch of random things that are made up. It's not, I mean, there are con artists who pose in the church who make up things. The church's job is to throw them out and to point out the truth of God's word, which stands forever. You talk about it being inconsistent, and it's, I think it's helpful if we, if we pause on that and go back to our original question of why is this attractive to people? And it's not attractive to people because it has an internal logic, it, but right. it is attractive to people because it's consistent in its appeal. And, and by that, I mean it's consistent in its appeal to whatever set of desires are common to sinful man. And, and if you can just throw out a net that grabs all of those and, and sort of gives you this package of hey, all of those things that you really want to be a god, to satisfy your desires while you're on earth, all those things that you really want, here's the system that can give those to you. 
I mean, and we should, I mean, and while we're saying it's inconsistent, we should also say they also use the Bible. I mean, you know what I mean? And, and there are times where they use the Bible and they use the actual consistency and truth of the Bible because there are times where you just want your kids to obey and you want people to follow some set of rules. And those things do make sense. Not always their application of them, not all, I mean, because they're, they're twisted with lots of different things. And like you said, Joseph Smith made up his own set of things and they contradict, but there are there are consistent, they do have within Mormonism things that are consistent and they're very useful for them. And so they're like, you know, hey, we use this and this allows you to have a life that allows you to have hope and does have good things in it. And so it's it's both of those things. Go and be a God and, you know, tell your children to obey you because having order is good in your household and telling them not to steal is a good thing and telling them not to murder is a good thing. And we just, I mean, it's both of those things mixed together. And there is, I mean, the religion, because it doesn't have any real roots, right? I mean, it doesn't have any sound foundation. It does mean that they can modify it so that it becomes what's useful for each generation. You know, you look at when it first came, right? They got driven out of community after community after community because communities existed. Now what they're using to drive growth is to say we are a community in a society that has no community. And so they're kind of like flipping it, but they can have that flexibility because they can look out and say, what are people missing? What do they want to have that they don't have? And the big push now is, hey, you can have as many sexual partners as you want. You don't need to be a polygamist. So why push polygamy? Because that's all that's not a societal problem. We're all accepting polygamy now. But on the other hand, you look and say community. Well, Facebook isn't much of a community. So now what they advertise is we are a community. I'm a Mormon, right? That was their right. advertising campaign. And it was like, look, you're creating a community out of where there is no community. And so they're very wise in how they shift it to be how they get their new, you know, their the new targets of their con, if you will, is that it shifts over time because they don't have a foundation that fixes them at all because it doesn't really matter. It's just how do you get more people into your into under your control and something that's probably a lot bigger than we realize because you know they the mormons have successfully maintained you know some some semblance of like you know wholesome you know a wholesome uh image and you know to some extent a wholesome reality i mean there's probably youtube channels you know wholesome family friendly youtube channels that you show your kids that are run by mormons because like all of them all the good ones are run by mormons and I mean, it's a real thing that people, and this real attractive thing, like, wow, these people, this, this is stuff that's way better than, you know, it's not pushing all this, you know, wicked stuff, but then, you know, oh, it's run by Mormons, you know, look at that. They must have some good stuff going on. Right. And it's all, you know, they're very, you know, God says what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to go do is preach the word, right? Because that's really what. The whole point of Christianity is to cause the world to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And so that's what we're supposed to be doing. Mormonism isn't looking at the world the same way because we're each going to be God. So the way to become a God is that you need to be furthering the religion. You need to be building it. You need to be. And so you can use whatever means you want to use because that really is the goal is very different than the goal of Christianity. And so because of that, they can make the appeal and they can do, I think, you know, Tuttle Twins, isn't that one of the things that mm -hmm. is Mormonism? And there's all these programs out there that they're looking at and going, oh, we're just giving wholesome family entertainment. But 
they also advertise heavily that we are the ones that do this. We are the ones that you can fix your family with. We are the ones that you can have a community with. Right. I mean, everything. I mean, VidAngel, I think the Wing Feather Saga, I think uh, the, the Chosen. I'm trying to think. You know, the Mark Chosen. Rober. Um, oh, it was Mark Rober? Yeah. Okay. I, I did not realize Mark Rober was. Yeah. was. Okay. I mean, players, there's a list and list and list. That's why he was with NASA. He was checking out other places. <laughs> yeah. You can't go on many reform groups and things like that even today without hearing discussions about the chosen and is the cho- you know and and there are people you know and you'll see somebody go don't watch it it's made by Mormons and you'll people go well what does that really matter and then people and, and I mean this is the level at which I mean that's a really good question to ask people is do you understand why you shouldn't look at anything. Even if you set aside the issue of Second Commandment violations and, and the use of images and all these things, if that was acceptable for Christians to do, which it's not, and we have videos on that too, but if it was, why sh- should you go to false people who don't know God, who don't know who God is, to be giving you this information? This is not what you should do, but this is the state of the world today. And so when you ask, how can they be successful? You understand why they are. And it really is. It keeps, not to keep repeating the same thing, but I will, which is that it comes back to the idea of removing reason from Christianity. When you remove reason from Christianity, why wouldn't you go with, because it there's no connection. It's just a bunch of things that you throw out. And so as long as what they're throwing out is okay, it's fine, as opposed to, no, we're supposed to be reasoning. And if it's reasoning, then they're starting with this inability to reason. If you look at what they're coming up with, that they will be gods. I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's just silly. But yet, that's what they're reasoning from, whatever reasoning they have. And that means the reasoning's really bad, and we should be learning how to reason. And you can't learn how to reason. You can't teach your children how to reason by watching these things that are produced by Mormons because they don't know how to reason. They know how to manipulate because... Joseph Smith was a con man. It's a cult that cults know how to manipulate people and they'll manipulate people in ways that make it look attractive, but it's still manipulation. Right. And they've, I mean, there's a part of it too, because people don't want to reason. They don't ask questions and because they don't ask questions. One of the things the Mormon church does is they follow the same advice I used to, to get married is let the crazy out slowly. You know what I mean? You, you don't, Mormonism doesn't start off conversations with people going, hey, do you want to be a god on your own planet and wear crazy underwear? I mean, that's not how they market themselves. It's not day one where you tell everybody every nutty thing that you've ever done. It's you. We're t- Christians. Right. We're like Christians. And people go, oh, how are you different? Yeah, well, we're just different. a little so, slight difference. Right. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, and, and but over, but also there are people who they want those differences and they look for them. And so, there are people where it is appealing to them, and it really does draw them, but they're not out there just broadcasting every nutty thing that they have. Whereas Christianity says, tell people the truth. Speak the truth to people. Paul, I mean, you know, this you see the Apostle Paul. He's looking for a way to segue into, do you understand why you're wrong in the way you're superstitious about the world? He's looking for an opening not to just tell them a little tidbit that will get them hooked. He's looking for... How can we tear down your false views of who you are? How can we tear down the lies that you've believed? And that's a massive difference. And if you want, Paul isn't interested in letting the crazy out slowly. You know, when his, his interactions are, let's go right there. Let's talk about Jesus, the God who died and came back to life. The thing that you're going, you Greeks are going to find most repugnant. We'll go there first. Right. And see who wants to listen after that. 
Although you did throw out a tidbit about the crazy underwear. You should probably, or the magic underwear, you should probably like flesh that out. Right, I said crazy underwear, not magic underwear. And then later you said, you know, here's a tidbit. Well, you know, they just throw out tidbits. Well, you should explain your tidbit. (laughs) So, I mean, and, and I don't know as much about it, and somebody else may need to fill in, but I mean, in Mormonism, if you want to go into the temple, they're, they're like the priests that had undergarments that are special undergarments, and you have to buy the special undergarments from the Mormon church. And if you want to go and into you can't one, buy them until you get ordained to be able to enter into the right. temple. And, and the temples are not just like a church. There's temples like there's one in Charlotte. There's probably, that's probably the only one in North Carolina. You talked about I think they built five in the past year. They were all outside the U.S. So, I mean— This year they, they did open one in Richmond. Okay. So, they, I mean, they have, you know, but their, their temples are more central locations where you, and I don't know all the reasons why you go to the temple. I'm, I'm not a Mormon. And so, and, but I mean, there's we're, a part of it where we're not Mormon experts. Right. And if you want to go into it, though, you have to have this underwear on. And if you don't have this underwear on, you will be excommunicated. And you're, and you're supposed to wear it all the time. Yeah. You're supposed right. to wear I mean, it all the time. You might not get in big day. trouble right. Right. if you don't wear it all the time, but you're supposed to. Right. But it's the standard thing that cults do where they have different levels of of being initiated into the cult. And so by the time you get to the point where you have the magic underwear so that you can go into the temple, you're you're full into the cult. You have all the the secrets you have all the you know you've reached that level just like you know but now there's, there's still more levels to go because you can there's all the apostles and there's oh, there's a whole right. lot i mean because that's a pretty to get into the temple is a pretty low level thing like to, that's 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 like being a real mormon to 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 do the temple investory like that like you're not really like a real mormon until you've done that like are the elders who go around and do the missions work or are they already yeah. okay i mean yeah you can't like you don't you you have to do that to get thinking. into the heaven like okay. the real heaven. There's several, but the real, like the the top heaven, you have to do that. I think that's what gets you in. But I thought by that point that you actually were supposed to understand Mormon doctrine by the well, time you did that. I mean, you don't have to read all the books. <laughs> I mean, that's too much to ask before you make someone an elder. <laughs> but wearing underwear the whole time, that, their well, whole yes, life. That's, a good that's idea. not you too much. No, I <laughs> a specific set of underwear you're supposed okay. to wear. And this is what cults frequently do. I mean, even what I've heard about, like Wiccan, where you're becoming a witch, right? I mean, the first thing that they do is they start out by saying there's good witches and bad witches, and they get you to come in to be a good witch because there's things that you can do to help people. And then you reach a certain level, and they go, no, there is no good and evil, so there can't be good witches and bad witches. And that's a very standard thing. That's what Scientology does. That's what a lot of these religions do is that they create these tiers that you let the crazy out as you go up in right. in the tiers. And so we should just recognize that Christianity is here's the book that has the truth. You can read whatever part of it you want. There is right. no letting the crazy out slowly in true Christianity. And right. again, it's not a new thing. This is Paul was dealing with this in the New Testament when he was fighting against Gnosticism, right. which is just it it's just a version of hey there's special knowledge that only the elite only the initiates have right i mean which i mean that's kind of, that's pretty necessary for mormonism the fact that there's questions that you as just a normal mormon can't have the answers to because there's like when if you like really study it like there's stuff that just doesn't this is just like completely made up like 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 joseph smith supposedly translated a papyrus which they still have the papyrus and now like there's a lot of people who know hieroglyphics. Back when he did this, there weren't barely anyone. And now they know that he made he made it up. Like he just completely made it up. 
because the, the, he should have burned the <laughs> should have burned the papyrus after he translated it. But you know, he was figured that. Well, he didn't care. He, he was, was just he was just trying to make money until he died. Yeah, but I mean, he wasn't. I mean, he's not the greatest con man. And I mean, they had the oldest. I don't know. He was pretty successful of a con man. He could have been a lot cleverer. If but he cared he about was, his kids. Well, he would have no, burnt he, the papyrus. He got, he got killed in jail, so that's he true. didn't like. I mean, I'll branch of that. He had it going well for a while. Well, that's because he conned people, and then he actually set up a bank and stole all their money, so it made people pretty mad. Yeah, but <laughs> but I mean, there's just I mean, you know, there's so much of it is just like, I mean, like. You know, just think about it. the head of the religion that set up a fake bank and stole all the deposits. I mean, and yet people follow him. I mean, it's really remarkable just how willingly people will blind themselves. Well, you read about Schofield and you're kind of like, oh, you know Schofield, what I mean? It's like, like I mean, yeah, I mean, like abandoning I mean, yeah. his family and faking checks. And I and mean, goes I mean and, and marry some other woman when he's still married. And right. Yeah, the, I mean. Yeah. So I mean it's it's I mean and it's not as bad because he didn't then say I have a secret way to know God but he did yes, but just but yes, dispensationalism but he didn't come up with it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying is at least I he mean popularized he, he wasn't as States. big of a con artist as Joseph Smith was. Joseph Smith was better than he was. That was my main point. But he didn't die. Shot? <laughs> he did die. He did die. <laughs> he didn't die for because of the faith. Yeah, we kind of mentioned this but just to kind of go back and look at and consider just how strategic they have been in maintaining a community. And people look at Utah and they think that it's much more of a family-friendly state, that there's much more of a community there, that you have these places where the Mormons, that they're – the things that people used to look to for church where they would go, this is a community. Now we don't look at the church as a community. Most churches are you just go and you show up and you hear somebody talk, you sing a couple songs, you leave, and there's no community there. Obviously, the churches have tried to do it with small groups to try to create some sense of community again. But the Mormons kind of maintain that sense of community, and they have a reputation, and they've, they've bragged about their sense of community. And community is a very biblical concept that people actually desire, and they, they recognize their own weakness. They recognize their need for fellowship, their need to have connections with other people. And in a society that those connections are disappearing— you know, Mormonism was very smart that they maintained it and then they're using it to advertise to get more people to steal their money from. And oh. they, they offer a shared sense of purpose. You know, we talked about this with the, the mission trips, but that's something that the evangelical church just can't seem to figure out. Right. They can't seem to figure out, here's a job that we're all doing together. It Because they're not appealing to you as somebody out there who has work to do their their appeal to you is hey work come here and we meet all your needs not right. let's go do work for god and you know pray this prayer to god and he has to meet all your needs so it starts with that that's their attitude towards god and then that's their attitude towards the church which is not a you can't build a community off of that bedrock right as opposed to the biblical bedrock is that we're new creatures in jesus christ saved for good works which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in when you look at it that way and understand what the gospel is, it's about being changed from a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness. Then all of a sudden is, what work is the church supposed to be doing? Because I was saved to do work. And that's how you build an actual community. I mean, there's a part of it where you say that, I mean, the church, the evangelical, uh, the evangelical church hasn't quite figured out how to do that. Part of the reason why is to do what the Mormons do. You have to have, you have to do things that the Bible doesn't say you can do. I mean, you have to build a hierarchical organization in the sense that you can structure and you can drive in a way. Christianity, you actually have to rely on the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, and, and, and it's a really interesting thing when I've been in churches before that were trying to create something falsely, and I've been in churches where there really was a reliance on the Holy Spirit. And it's really amazing when you watch, the Holy Spirit really does direct his people. And I mean... The God, Holy Spirit gives you a lot of work to do. That's I just want to say that. He gives you a lot of work to do right? if you're willing to be directed by the Spirit. And I mean... If you have the Spirit to be directed and by And I mean down to, to, you know, I mean, and I don't mean through like mystical, I don't mean through signs and portents. I mean like there's work that shows up in front of you that you know you need to do. And it's, you know, and there's times where people come to you and go, I mean, I had someone today say, hey, have you... Have you contact? You know, you should. Have you reached out and contacted this person? I heard from somebody, and it was someone who two years ago I've been trying to get up with, and I kind of dropped the ball and and stopped. You know, there wasn't any traction there, but I realized I've really dropped the ball in this. And it came. I mean, and reconnected today, got connected back, and we're going to have lunch later on this week. I mean, and and somebody goes, oh, that's just normal sorts of things. God directs his people in real ways. He actually he pushes. He gives you. I mean. He shows you needs, and then and Scripture says you know the fact that the need was shown to you. You know that you were supposed to meet that need. I mean, and there's this this part of it where that's a completely different thing than an organization. Effectively, Mormonism is sort of a business that has spiritual authority, and they can well, build a fake spiritual authority, right? I mean, but right where they but where you really are giving them. You shouldn't expect it to be any better than any other business out there because they don't have the Holy Spirit breaking the power of sin, and they have more authority than most businesses have. So, I mean, there are some real benefits from being in those connections. There's probably some really dark circles and dark sides of that 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 doesn't get publicized very well because they're a pretty they have a lot of power and a lot of ability to influence their media. At the time that we're recording this, I mean, there's news stories starting to trickle out about a you know significant problem of incest in the Mormon church. And so there's there's an expectation, at least the way that the media is covering it now, is that this might blow up to be as big as what's happening in the Catholic church or the Southern Baptist church and their current scandals. Yeah, I'd put the Southern Baptist one in a completely different scale than the Roman Catholic one, to be you fair. You mean smaller, much, much, much smaller. Much, much smaller. It's, it's mismanagement of, potential mismanagement of... You know, of independent of churches that, and of reporting versus like actually promoting it and causing it to continue and hiding it. And, you know, the, the two are very different. But in Mormonism, yes. my guess is we'll fall somewhere in between the two, probably leaning more towards Roman Catholicism. And, and I mean, just uh, I mean, call back to a previous episode. We did an episode on the whole child trafficking and the Sound of uh, Freedom movie. And I, it since there's since we did that, I mean, there's been stories that came out about how the guy who is a Mormon, you know, there was a lot of sexual sin there. And the Mormon church's response is to say, oh, he's in trouble because he used the president, I think, the president of the Mormon church, he used his name without permission. So that's what they come after him for. Rather Not than him the being fact, a sexual predator on the yeah. women that went with him. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's indicative of the problems in the Mormon church... There's some pretty dark stuff going on. And it's the classic, you know, distancing, oh, we were never, you know, we were never buddies, and yes, right. you were buddies. Which, and, but they even have the opportunity and, to say he was a wicked guy, but instead they just said he used our name without permission. In vain. Like, instead of like he used <laughs> our Hey, name if you're becoming a god, a god, that's an important thing. God's that's really a, serious about using his name in vain. That's, I mean, that's very much how it came across, is that was, that's what they were offended by. Is the use of their name in and, vain, and and their and their evidence for it was like actually, I mean, I don't know that that's really a problem. Like it seemed like his use of it was like not like that shady, but <laughs> right. He was like, I know him. I'm like, okay, fine, you know him. 
that sense of community that is lost and that they're using to draw people in, it doesn't mean that it's actually in the Mormon church. It means that that's the facade they're putting out there. That's the image that they're wanting to, to have and to be seen to be. You know, it's like the Roman Catholics want this image of being very charitable, even though they aren't very charitable. But yet they want that image and they do all the offerings and they go, look at all these great works that they're doing. And it doesn't need to be real. It's just how they're marketing. And so the Rome, or the, the Mormons would be the same way. They're marketing that they have a sense of community, how active, how actual, you know, I, I you know, worked with some Mormons, you know, years ago and they didn't have any different community than anybody else had. It wasn't like starkly different. Their connection to people, they had done their elder thing for two years. They had been, a, I think they were missionaries in Japan or someplace. And now they have no connection to the church. I mean, it wasn't like that community. So we should recognize when they're selling it, they're selling it. It right. doesn't mean it's real. I mean, it's going to be a lot more real in Utah than it's going to be in other places. You know what I mean? I mean, and, and while, and, but in Utah, it's also going to be, it's so common that it, sometimes it almost doesn't exist because it's so prevalent. And so, I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's going to be a mix of things. Then in Utah, it probably exists more just because, you know, they're they're attracting people to Utah because it has certain constraints on sin that aren't in other places, which probably leads to some greater sense of community. I mean, so when we're talking about community, I mean, one of the things that's, that's really relevant is Christianity teaches there to be community in the church. And it actually, it doesn't just say, hey, be communal. I mean, there are verses, a man who would have friends must show himself friendly, but it actually gets more detailed in it. I mean, Romans 12, 10 through 13, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. And so, I mean, that starts to be a list of real things. I mean, you know, some of them, you know, people go, well, some of those are sort of vague. I mean, they, they all have really specific application. And you get into distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, showing preference to one another, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation. I mean, these things, they're, they're, they're things that actually have details to them and substance where you can actually look and go, am I doing them? And, you know, and so there's a part of it where when a church is doing what it's supposed to, it creates a community, and, and this isn't just limited to within the church. I mean, the hospitality goes outside of the church. It goes to other people, and then, you know, people that you know, people that you meet, having them into your home. And we have, we have episodes specifically on that, just talking about that hospitality has become a lost thing. It's much more common to entertain than it is to really to try to focus on being hospitable and meeting the needs of others and bringing them in and welcoming them and, and actually actually meeting their needs as opposed to just they came over and they saw our home and and they were you know they were suitably impressed i mean which is which is which or is they the, had fun right which is the prideful desire which is how our prideful heart wants to do hospitality and so i mean scripture really fights at that it strikes at the heart of it it says that's not what i've called my people to do but it actually tells you how to build a community that's real right and you know it talks about in you know first corinthians 12 how we're one body and so community is inherent to Christianity, but yet the reason Mormonism can sell it is because the church isn't doing a basic commandment that it's been given. 
right? And so all of a sudden Mormonism looks like it has community and Christianity looks like it doesn't. Well, that's because the Christians aren't acting like Christians. And the Mormons aren't necessarily acting like Christians, but they at least will put on a facade and lie about it. But the Christians need to actually start acting like Christians, which means that they are hospitable, especially when you read Matthew 25, where God says, I was hungry and you gave me food. Those are the ones who go to heaven. I mean, hospitality is very key to how God, it's the example that he gives of how he will judge the world, which should really concern us when Mormonism can beat the, you know, the Orthodox Christian church, not Orthodox in the sense of, you know, the split from the Roman <laughs> Catholics, but those who actually have Orthodox doctrine, the fact that, that the Mormon church can beat us in community is a real sign of failure of doctrine, failure of understanding of what God has commanded. They're mostly winning in marketing because, I mean, I mean, like you said before, when I was saying that the church doesn't proclaim, you know, Christianity doesn't proclaim the greatness of God. Every day there are people all over the world who wake up and they say, how do I be hospitable this week? How do I do these things? So, I mean, right now in the world, there are Christians who are fulfilling these things and who are doing this because God has servants in every part of the world, in every nation, in every city. There are people who serve him. But, I mean, it is worth saying. I mean, we've some of you have listened to our podcast for a couple of years, you know, and are you being hospitable? You know, do you do you have a you know do you set aside a day of the week and go? I'm going to have somebody over. I'm going to make this. I'm going to be purposeful in doing this. I'm going to structure my life so I can do these things. I mean, these are things that Christians should do, and we should strive to do them and not make them just this optional thing. And the right response to hearing that kind of a, a an encouragement is not to say, "Oh, well, my church is not very hospitable." You are your church. You know, right. if your church isn't hospitable, then then and and you notice it then that's God giving you the nudge to go do that thing. You know, if you think your church doesn't have community, if you've identified that, well, then that's God giving you the nudge to say, go build that community. You're, you are it. It's not and, something independent from you. I mean, there was a church that I was in that nobody did hospitality. So I was teaching in Sunday school. I deliberately went through and we had every single family, you know, that was represented in the Sunday school over and, you know, how else do you get people to see what hospitality is like? And most of those people had never been invited into somebody else's home. You know, and they're 30 or 40 years old, and they had never been invited into somebody else's home. That's how far we've fallen. And I'm not even saying that, I mean, the teaching in the church, that they were doing sequential exposition. It wasn't like it was a horrible church, but the church had completely lost that idea. And the way it gets back is by people going, I got to do it. Yeah. Maybe they just hadn't got to the hospitality passage yet. I mean, there was there was. Well, a, that's when I hit the hospitality <laughs> passage, and I went, "Ooh!" <laughs> right. there was, and that's when I started to do hospitality. There was, a, I think, it was an Ask Reddit thread not that long ago that it was what's something that used to be polite that's now rude, and one of the highest, one of the high rated comments was dropping in on someone when you're in the area, mm -hmm. and they talked. I mean, and and it's just a picture of a of a shift in American society that there was once a point where if you were in the area, people would welcome you dropping by. And now if you drop by, it is, what are you doing here? We're not, what are, you know, and so people had a expectation of being ready to be hospitable. And now if we do it, it's under very controlled circumstances, if it happens at all. And so, I mean, this is a picture of when you look at Mormonism and saying community, the reason America was like this was because the church was a prevailing influence in the world, in the church and in America. And that's how, that's how Christians acted, is they were welcoming to people who stopped by. And the community wasn't like, now we think about community as being people within, you know, a few miles of us. I mean, then you go, 
you you go halfway across the country and you just stop at somebody's house and say, I'm right. hungry, and you would have an expectation that people would feed you. Right. I mean, that was the community was a national community, and everybody just expected there to be a national community. And that's how far we've we've drifted from what the Bible teaches, so that now churches don't even think they should be hospitable to one another in the church. And so then you look at Mormonism and it goes, we'll give you community. Well, people are desperate for community. I mean, that's one thing that, that we should recognize, that when we preach, if we preach the truth of what God has commanded us to do and what he has called us to do, people are desperate for these things. It's not like God's ways aren't pleasant ways and his paths aren't peace. They are. And we've just lost them so far that people don't even recognize that these are better ways. Instead, we just sit and we play with our phones and we look at Facebook. And and you say preach the truth, and it's important that it doesn't. It's not just something that has to come from a pulpit down. Right. You're talking about this is the one anothering. Of right. Absolutely. This, this is Hebrews ten, verse twenty four and twenty five, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. I mean, this is just talking about, hey, you are in each other's lives enough that you can look at somebody and you can say, hey, good works. Hey, how about these good works? You know, I see you doing those good works. Good job. I, hey, there's this good work over here. You, you're equipped for that. How about you go do that good work? I mean, this is. And that's really how, you know, and it says, you know, we read, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and we forget for what purpose. And the reality is that the assembly of the church, part of it is to build community, Part of because you build community when you exhort somebody, right? You build community when you say, so what good work are you doing? Have you ever thought about that you have the capacity to do this good work? Why haven't you done it? I mean, that is how community gets built. And so God ordered the meeting of the church that we're supposed to be doing this and we're supposed to be building community in these real practical physical ways that the church just completely ignores and then we go why is the church so weak well we're not really assembling ourselves together i mean we we've talked about this i can't remember if we talked about it on on a podcast but it's been like one of those discoveries that you know i remember running across that that phrase where it says stir up you know i think in the king james it's provoke the Greek word for that is like one of the strongest words you could use in a social setting. I mean, the other place where I think it's primarily used in the New Testament is when Paul and Barnabas had their falling out. Like that, you know, and it's like, I mean, it's like to this story, it is like, it is not like you were saying just, hey, you should be doing this. It is an involvement with one another at a really deep level. Of it's how can I poke you in such a way that really annoys you? It <laughs> <laughs> causes you to do good. And so, I mean, we, I mean, we just, we have this. We have this Mormon marketing idea of of exhortation, that that's as far as the church should go. And God's going, no, I didn't send my son to die for you to look at each other and go, hey, let's all go do good. And, you know, when a little cartoon bird flies by and lands on your shoulder, I mean, he's like, no, I sent my son to die so that you would go into the world and you would provoke one another to love and good work. If you think that you can go into a building that's called Faith Community Life Center— and sing a couple songs and walk out the door and shake a few hands and that you've done you this. forgot the 15 minute sermon i i did i forgot it because well but but if you think that that is fulfilling what hebrews is talking about with assembling yourselves together it's just not there's so much more to it and you can't just call it a community center out on the placard and think that you've actually got community 
most of the love and good works that you're provoking one another to happens during the week. You know what I mean? Is is you know the Sunday is not where the bulk of your love and good works happen. That is not. That is where the church prepares one another, and we you know, but we provoke one another to then go out and do those works right. in the that's, world. That's the day of rest, so that we go and do the good works. The good works are what the other six days are for. That's for the work days for the work. Another area that they've yeah that Mormonism and you know, they're more faithful in this in certain ways. Obviously, in other ways, they're not faithful in this. But but they do have much more of a family orientation than Christianity currently has. And so, in Mormonism, they also that's the other thing. We have a community, and before that, their big picture or their big push that they were advertising is: look, we'll get your family in order. You can have your, you know, your mother, your father, your three kids, and everybody can be happy and get along well together. And and this is what Mormonism produces. So they were using their advertising to basically say, you know, we'll solve your family problems. And again, they don't really solve them, right? Because they actually typically believe in polygamy, which doesn't really. That creates, yeah, read the story of David if you don't believe that creates family problems. Well, Take I mean, these days they don't typically believe in polygamy. They, Unless you're a splinter group. Right. right. But typically, that's the non-typical. Well, do they not believe it or do they not practice it? Uh, well, I mean, if you're saying the average Mormon, I don't think they believe it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. They don't believe in to the level that they can practice, that they practice it. Right, they certainly don't believe it to the point where they would violate the civil law to do it. They're pushing family, but yet some of their underlying views of family are completely wrong, right? They don't look at it and say, this is a picture of Christ in the church because that's not the picture that they're thinking of at all. And so they're not saying that this is what the family should look like, but they actually have an answer to the family when most churches in America, they don't actually have an answer to how do you strengthen families? Well, I can tell you one way that you that you destroy families is you send the father one place, you send the mother to another place, you send the kids into three different places. And guess what? And then you come after the church service and you go, oh yeah, let's have you know, a good strong family when you've all you've done is torn the family apart. And so what happens in most Christian churches is not strengthening the family. So Mormonism can come in and go, look, we, we believe in families unlike your local Christian church. We'd go to Costco, we'd go to grocery stores, we'd go to wherever, and you go out with six, seven, eight kids, people tend to notice. I've never had a person stop me and ask if I was Baptist. You know what I mean? I've, I've, I would have a lot of times people, I got a lot of Mormon, I got a lot of Catholic guesses. Those were the two primary guesses I got. It was Mormon and Catholic. Now, I mean, never once did somebody go, oh, you're clearly a Baptist. And I mean, and and that's kind of it's telling the the space that people have in their head for large families is not what mainstream american christianity is and it's not the you know i mean it's not their picture of it and i think you know again just when you're thinking about the image that we project and and what and it should be an image that we project not that everybody has to have eight kids not that i mean but in the end i mean they've done studies the average is about seven you know for you know, if you if you have if you have uh, you know a, a healthy sex life without using birth control, that's about the average number of kids, and that's not the average number of kids in in the church. And so, I mean, you can definitely look and say that's not something the church has pursued. And so, I mean, yeah, it's a pretty clear thing. 
when you have the, the Bible painting pictures like this in Psalm 128, 2 through 3. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. And so that, that kind of image of the, the happy family is one that the, the Mormons really push and say that this is, this is what you're going to get with us. And, you know, the, the evangelical church, I think, is denying that those things are blessings. And, I mean, I, and the Mormons actually kind of take it too far because for them, like, you know, a lot of the purpose of Mormonism is you have to, you know, to, to be the head, the, the best Mormon you can be, you have to get married, you have to have a lot of children, and then you're going to have, you know, in eternity, you're going to keep having spiritual children, and that's part of you, you're building your kingdom. And they've, they've kind of taken, like, you know, one important part of what the Bible teaches about what we're supposed to be doing in this world. And they've kind of made it like almost everything. That That is the purpose. Um, and that's something that, you know, in those days, you know, when it was first starting, I don't think big families were would have been a Mormon distinctive. But, you know, 20th century, that very quickly becomes a Mormon distinctive where the, the, the you know, the, the Orthodox Church just abandons that. And the Mormons now, you know, it's, it's all, it's all, points on, on their score and people still like the idea of a peaceful family they still like the idea of a home that that your children are there yeah they're only thinking two children they're not thinking seven children but but this is still very attractive especially in a society where there's so much breakdown of the family and again the church isn't turning around and going we have the solution to this the church is basically you know going we don't have the solution to this. We don't have an idea how to do this. We don't really have anything to say to this. What we're doing is we're just causing things to divide. And part of it has to be to let's get things back in order the way that God put them in order. And and then families will be joyful. There will be more peace in the family. Things will be more orderly. But as long as we're against God's order, we can't be surprised that the homes aren't in order and that they don't have these things that God says he'll bless people with through obedience. It's clearly an area in which the church is timid in wanting to say what God actually says, lest they offend the congregation and people not come next week. We did an episode on uh, building a culture that of life. You know that I mean, it was kind of tied to the the Roe versus Wade. There was a Roe versus Wade decision that was reversed, and there's a part of it where the church is now going. Have how much have we been influenced by this culture of death? And what does the church actually need to do to change its view towards life? And that means changing its view towards children, changing its view toward the elderly, changing the view toward the disabled. Because and not that the church has a has a completely hostile view towards all of those, but it's more hostile than you would think. Because we really have been influenced by the culture of death, by the by the culture that says that we should we should embrace death. The the church has a neutral stance, right? We're not the church isn't going, hey, we should provoke people. We should provoke people to say, hey, children are a blessing. Why do you think two children is the right number? Why, who put you in charge of the womb? We go, that's too personal. We can't say that. We go, right. we don't go, why don't you let your parents live with you? Why are you sending them off to a nursing home? We go, that's too personal. We, we just let people make those decisions. Instead of saying, God actually spoke to these things. You have to answer the question. What did God say about these? What does God say about the elderly? You're supposed to rise before the hoary head. He doesn't say shuffle them off so you can't see them. He says just the opposite. And so, so much of what the church has done is we're not willing to actually do what it takes to actually, because as Jonathan said, they may not show up next week. 
we're more concerned about numbers than we are against righteousness because we want to exalt man. And if you're going to exalt man, you might as well just say he's going to become a god. It works a lot better when you exalt man and just leave on the table the fact that he becomes a god. Well, the next person that comes along that's exalting man, they'll beat you because they'll go, look, you get to become a god if you're a Mormon. Right. Instead, we just exalt man without, without closing the deal. Let's instead start exalting God, and then man falls into his proper place, which is where righteousness, peace, and joy is. And that's one way where the church, actually, the modern church has kind of said, let the crazy out slowly, is they don't want to teach doctrine and the actual application of that doctrine. They, If they find right. it to be offensive, let's hide, let's yeah, hide that. No question the church doesn't want to let the crazy out slowly. It's God that's like or wants to let the crazy out slowly. It's God that goes, no, here's my book. Read right. it. You, right. can, you can read how I destroy. You know, millions of people came out of Israel. I killed them all except two or out of Egypt. I killed them all except two. I mean, God doesn't leave the crazy out slowly. Right. Hey, I mean, you start at the beginning and by the – ninth chapter he's killed billions of people you know he doesn't let the crazy out slowly so as we as we kind of come to the end of this discussion i mean one of the where we started and and where we're kind of ending is there are false doctrines that are being taught mormonism is a whole set of not some new lies a bunch of old lies packaged up and lies lead to death lies cause people to come down and to, to be led to destruction and scripture talks about that in Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. And I mean, you know, when, when Mormonism came up, like we said, it was after the Second Great Awakening. I mean, this when it started, it it wasn't sold as, hey, here's this false religion. I mean, nobody went, this is a, you know, I mean, and even today, it's not sold as, here's this false religion. It's sold as, this is a variant of Christianity. This is Christianity with some differences. And it is full of destructive false views that are full of lies and, and, Mormonism has affected the church. Mormon, there, there are ideas that exist in the church that the church has picked up from Mormonism, that the church has picked up because they say they've been successful with this. Let's steal that. I mean, there are, we just shouldn't think that lies don't affect everyone, that lies, lies, get, lies get repeated, they get copied, they, get, they mutate. And God's saying this is a serious deal, and the church needs to deal with it. The church needs to actually deal with the lies in our midst, and we need to proclaim the truth. And we just need to recognize that the reason heresies come up, right, is what he's saying in Second Peter. The reason heresies come up is because they're trying to get people to follow them. So when we look at Mormonism, when we say, look at all their marketing to get people to follow, well, that's, that's what heretics do. That's exactly what heretics do. That's what we should expect heretics to do. They're trying to do it to get a following. And the way you prevent people from following them is you speak truth and you speak the realities of what God has said. You exalt God rather than exalting man. And the problem when people start to follow the destructive heresies and they start to go down this path and all these people follow, well, as soon as they start following, they feel like fools if they turn back. Think if you moved to Utah when it was really hard to move to Utah. And then all of a sudden Joseph Smith says, well, this wouldn't be Joseph Smith, but when they were in Missouri and Joseph Smith says, hey, polygamy is good. 
Well, you already spent a long time following him. And all of a sudden you go, well, I have a choice now. I can go, this guy's a nut, which makes me feel like an idiot for having spent months of my life following him. Or you go, I guess I'll go along with that air too. You know what I mean? And, and the pride, and it builds this system that the system drags people along because they're going, well, yeah, he's kind of crazy, but hey, I'll be a God at the end. And those lies build upon lies, which build upon lies, which makes people accept more and more errors. And so that's when you look at incest and go, it wouldn't be surprising if it's in the Mormon church. That wouldn't be surprising at all because you know that anybody who's gone down this path and has invested so much in it that they start to cover it up and they start to go, yeah. And it has to really bubble up to the point where it's pretty significant before it will break out. I mean, that's what happens with Roman Catholicism. Think about how many young altar boys were molested and it happened over like 50 years before it finally broke because everybody was willing to accept the error. They were willing to accept that level of depravity before it would reach the point where the church went, yeah, we just can't, we, we just can't hide it anymore. And even then it was because they couldn't control the civil magistrate is why they couldn't hide it. But when you look at it, just think of the investment people have in error that they will take the next step and they will accept that error because to not take it means that you have to reject so many things that you've already done and you have to say you were wrong about a whole bunch of things and people aren't willing to do that. Instead, they'd rather accept incest. That's the level of depravity of man. That's the power of these destructive heresies is that they will lead people to places where at the beginning they would never imagine going there. And they end up going and they go, well, yeah, we'll just cover it up. We'll just accept this because otherwise I look like a fool. I look like an idiot. I look like, you know, I, I lose all these things that I have and I'm they're not willing to do it. And so heresies have real effects and they end up having real effects of acceptance of sin. And there's a part of it where I think it's really easy at times for the church to be deceived and think that there's no difference between the church and the Mormon church. It's easy to be almost fooled into saying you don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when you look at the Mormon church, I mean, this is the whole issue. When you look at the Catholic church, you look at it, they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of sin is not being broken. And that's a reality. And yeah, there are a lot of false churches out there that call themselves Baptist churches where the power of sin has not been broken in that church and in that leadership. And so there are real evil places out there like that. But there are places where it has. And they are different. They really are different. And I think there's this part of it where people go, it's all just the same. And, it is, and, and if it's all the same, there is no God. If, there is, if it is all the same, then Jesus Christ didn't come to do anything. Like Paul's like, we are men most miserable because if he did not overcome the power of death, if he didn't do that, then there's no, there really is no hope. And so, I mean, it really does come down to this point of do you actually believe, do you, do you see and believe the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? And if you don't have it, then you're no different than a Mormon. You really are no different, and you really don't have hope. But if you do, don't conflate them. Don't let their marketing conflate you, because in the end, they can't, they can't replace what the Holy Spirit does. There is nothing that will do that. And God is a jealous God. And that's a really important thing to remember. He is a jealous God. He didn't stop being jealous in the New Testament. And so it's not like the Holy Spirit can be in the Mormon church because the Mormon church is about exalting man. So 
it's not there because God is a jealous God. That's a promise of scripture. He's a jealous God. And so when we look and we act like, oh yeah, this is just, no, the Holy Spirit cannot be there. He cannot because he would be against himself and he is, God is not divided against himself. And so I think we just take these things so loosely like they don't matter. Well, no, it's crucial to the nature of God. But if you've exalted man and reduced God, then who cares about the nature of God? But Christians are supposed to care about the nature of God. When we think of the attractiveness of Mormonism, we should recognize it's really indicating serious failures in the church to do what it's supposed to do. If we simply went back to some of the basic commands of Scripture, Mormonism wouldn't have that much attractiveness. The way it's attracting people now is by actually being a fake version of what the church is supposed to be. Churches need to repent and do what they're supposed to do. And then Mormonism wouldn't have the attractiveness that it has. And that starts with each of us doing the things that we're supposed to do. Are you provoking people to love and good works? Are you ordering your family the way God would have you to order your family? Are you building community? These are the things that if the church was doing, Mormonism would lose most of its attractiveness. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching.